Well, good morning. It's good to see you all today. And um, as we uh, continue just in our series of Rediscover Church, I was reminded this week as I began to think and pray and, and study of um, my, my childhood a little bit. And for me, growing up um, in the church was going to church uh, since I was in the nursery. And as I um, got older, and, and this is in no way to um, be an indictment on that particular church, but my understanding of what um, it meant uh, to be a Christian, what it meant to be a part of the church, was someone who didn't want to go to hell. <laughs> to which, who wants to go to hell? <laughs> and um, most of the, the sermons that I remember, uh, most of the, the teachings that I remember were all um, designed uh, to, to scare people, to talk about some, how incredibly awful um, hell is. And indeed, um, it is awful. It is an awful place that no one um, would want to go or to spend eternity. And all of those uh, images and the scripture, they were regularly um, discussed all to get people to pray a prayer to then be considered part of the church. And this is how I grew up. And this is what was expected. And as I got older and began to just see people more, to know what's going on in people's lives, know what's going on in people's families, and even my own family and life, what, what Christianity was, it was saying a prayer so you didn't go to hell, and then acting that way on Sundays. <laughs> or at least between 9 a.m. and noon and 6 and 8 p.m. And I, I grew up thinking, man, um, the pastor, he always wears a suit and tie. Like, I legitimately believe that uh, my pastor, uh, when he would mow his grass, <laughs> and I'm sorry, I actually said before, I don't have any grass mowing examples today. I just thought of this. Sorry, Megan. I, I, I viewed him on his John Deere tractor in his black... Um, suit pants, and um, his short sleeve, white, button down. He didn't have a tie on, though. Just, just a dress shirt and his dress pants, mowing his lawn. And because that's, that's what Christians did. They, they dressed up. Um, they looked apart. And once um, you prayed that prayer and you said, I don't, I don't want to go to hell, I want to go to heaven, because that's much better, um, you instantly began wearing brown polyester suits with orange ties. And it sounds funny, and it kind of is, but for me, that's what it meant um, to be a Christian, is to, to live this way and just believe certain things. As I got older into my high school years, so we um, were part of a, a different church, and there were people at this church that they, they, weren't, they weren't talking about hell all the time. And I was like, oh, that's weird. <laughs> Maybe they don't believe correctly. <laughs> And they weren't um, just trying to get people uh, to say a prayer. And I never, although there was one guy, one guy had the brown suit with the polyester and the orange tie, but that was it. But these people, at least some of them, they actually seemed to like Jesus. And they were excited to be there. They were excited to sing songs. Um, there was joy um, going in their life. And they, they actually wanted to tell people about Jesus. And that was foreign to me. It was so foreign. As I um, gave my life to Christ and went to college and 
And, and honestly, I think most of my life have really been asking this question, um, who's in and who's out? We live in a world where there are so many different um, denominations, there are um, different um, beliefs, and then there's all of, we talked about just recently, just the false teaching and heresy, and who's in and who's out? And last week, as we began um, this series, uh, Rediscover Church, I know that that idea for me um, isn't just um, a sermon series, but it's really been a, a life pursuit um, to just rediscover what is the church, who is the church, and what is the church um, supposed to be. And last week, Paul um, helped us to see that the church is not a building. You know, and even now, people will ask me, hey, did you find a, a new church? Well, they're, what they're asking is, have we bought a new building yet? <laughs> well, no, I'd like to. Um, church um, isn't a service. Oftentimes, uh, we'll ask people, I'll ask people, hey, are you going to church today? Hey, are you getting up for church? Hey, will you be at church tomorrow? And oftentimes, what I mean is that there's this, this service that's going on. And Paul helped us to, to see again that it's, church is not a service. It's not a building. It's not a service. Church is a people. It's a people. And it's a people who have been called out um, by God to follow him. So why are we studying this? Obviously, I think many of us can, can put together those, those ideas. Yeah, we know it's not a building. We know it's not a service. We know um, church is a people, although our language might not match that. Now, why are we studying this? I think um, simply because uh, much of all of this has been lost, uh, particularly in the U.S., uh, regarding uh, what and who the church is, as well as what the church is supposed to be doing. Many of us have grown up in a world where there's this cultural Christianity. And what I mean by cultural Christianity is that there's, there's this acceptance of a, of a moral code to where everyone understands, um, at least on some level, things that are right and things that are wrong. And that, we see that quickly eroding, right? And as that goes away, because many people would say they were Christians. And you see all the studies, right? You see them on the news, you see them in books. You know, church attendance is down. Uh, Christians, less people are identifying with Christianity than before. And I wonder how much of that is, is people who weren't really a part of the church to begin with. Because they were cultural Christians, they really didn't have any idea of what it meant to be part of the church other than attending a service or going to a building. I think we've lost sight of it. And I think for many of us, we need to rediscover church um, for ourselves and I think for the world that's in desperate um, need of a savior. And this morning, what we want to look at um, is who actually is the church. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, we are grateful today for your grace and, and for your goodness. We are grateful for the fact that um, while we were still sinners, that you loved us and that Christ gave his life for us. We're grateful for the ways when we get it wrong that you're patient with us. We're grateful for the ways that you teach us. And Father, today, just ask that your will would be done in our lives, that we would see you even if just a little bit better, or even radically so, that we would see you for who you are. God, that we would realize for, the, for those of us that have been born again, 
that we've been adopted into your family and we are children of the king. And God, that we would live as such. Help us today um, to hear you. And God, may you change us. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So before we begin to look at um, what or who the church is, I want us to look at two reasons I think that this has probably got confused um, for a lot of us in the first place. Um, First, um, there's some biblical reasons, and second, I think some cultural ones. Not that I'm saying that Scripture is wrong. I'm not saying that at all. But sometimes we'll see um, what seems to be um, different criteria for what it means to be a follower of Christ, to be in the church. We'll see um, things like where Jesus called the 12 disciples in Matthew 4 and other passages. What is it that Jesus um, asked them? He said, come, follow me. I will make you fishers of men. We see in John chapter 3 with um, Nicodemus, and we're going to come back to that one later. Um, He's told what it is to be born again. We see the rich young ruler. He was told, go, sell everything that you have and give it to the poor and follow me. Jesus, um, at times and at will, um, seems to forgive people of their sins with little or nothing else um, being said by anyone. For example, the thief on the cross. We see in Acts 2, or speaking to the men of Judea and Jerusalem, and in other places, um, after teaching that Jesus was indeed um, the long-awaited Messiah come to rescue them, Peter told them to repent and be baptized to receive the Holy Spirit. We see the apostles preaching. Um, oftentimes, it reminds us um, the people um, of their true history, the people of Israel, and that God's plan of redemption since the creation of the world. We can see um, the speech or the sermon by Stephen in Acts chapter 7 where he reminds them of all of their history to point out that Jesus is the one that they've been longing for. We see in Acts chapter 9, Saul, prior to his conversion, an eventual name change to Paul, it says this in Acts chapter 9, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, he went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. And even here with Saul or Paul, um, there's not any description of what exactly um, Saul came to believe, what exactly uh, was his thoughts, was there more conversation. Sometimes it seems as though there's a um, just simple belief that gets you in, and sometimes there seems to be um, specific things that people are supposed to do. And sometimes I think that denominations and we as God's people, we want to draw um, hard lines in in just individual passages or ideas instead of taking Scripture as a whole. Oftentimes I think we neglect to understand, um, particularly with Jesus, he's talking to different people at different times. And he's God. (laughs) He knows what someone's thinking. He knows what it is that they will hold back 
from him. He knows what it means for that individual uh, to leave everything, to repent, and to follow him. Jesus knows these things. We can't look into one another's hearts and say, well, this is, this is what Chuck needs, or Elena needs, or this is what Kathy needs, or anyone else. We can't do that, but Jesus could, and he knew exactly what it was. And throughout um, the book of Acts, we see oftentimes simple belief. Sometimes we just see baptism. Sometimes we see both. But I think when we look at the scripture chronologically, we see how quickly the gospel was being diluted from the time of Jesus to the time of the epistles. And not just diluted, but confused at times and blatantly other times mistold for individual people's gain. We can see that in Galatians 1. Paul writes, I am astonished, as he's writing to the church in Galatia, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For I am now... For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God, or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. The gospel, what it means to be in the church, to be a part of the church, who's in, who's out, even in biblical times, was quickly distorted, quickly diluted, and people became quickly confused as to what it even meant. Culturally, I think there are other reasons, oftentimes driven by people's sin. We've traded, um, first, we've traded conversion for the idea of making uh, people feel as though they belong. And although it does sound good to make people feel like they belong, I think it's actually cruel. Several years ago, I was um, at a youth uh, pastor's kind of network lunch, and uh, there we were having this discussion about student ministry, and, and one of the guys was talking about um, how to help uh, your, your student ministry grow. And by grow, what he meant was numerically, to have more students come. And he began to talk about this idea that um, students need to feel as though they belong. There are books written about mankind's search to belong. I mean, does anybody want to feel like a, not they don't belong, a cast out? No, nobody wants to feel that way. Nobody. And as, as he began to talk about this, uh, the statement was said um, for students, and, and also implied for adults, they have to belong before they believe. I was like, hmm, sounds good. It's got an alliteration in there with two, two Bs, so it's good Baptist, you know, <laughs> thought process. I grew up Baptist, so I can say that. Um, but th you think about it, you, people have to feel like they belong before they believe. It's so untrue. What is it that they belong to? For our students to come to our student ministry, for adults to come here on a Sunday morning, um, to make people think um, as though they belong just because of their physical presence here, it sounds good right? 
And I'm not saying we shouldn't be welcoming, hospitable, kind, gracious, loving. All of those things should be true about God's people wherever we are, whether it's here in these four walls, in our home, at the ball diamond, at work. All of those things should be true. But to make people feel as though they belong so that they will believe, it's cruel. People grow up, students grow up. I grew up thinking as though just because I'm here, I belong. I'm part of God's family. I'm part of the church. How will, how will those ever hear the gospel? How will there ever be conversion um, in their lives? And, when, and there at that lunch on that day, we began to have this back and forth argument. And honestly, sadly, um, although I found out later Trevor was with me, uh, I felt as though I was the only one who actually disagreed. And how sad that we would say, hey, let's make someone feel as though they belong because that's what they're going to need to believe. And again, yes, the church should be welcoming, um, hospitable, um, all of those things. But let's not make people feel as though they belong and let them believe um, that they're a follower of Christ without actually having conversion in their life. The second cultural reason I think, as though this has gotten confusing, is that we've traded earthly successes, and by successes we can put quotes around them, uh, for our call to preach the gospel. Uh, We've seen it over and over. Uh, In fact, uh, we as a church in our history have been part of the problem. The, The thinking goes like this, healthy things grow, therefore adding more people to our gatherings is healthy. Therefore, our job is to get more people to come to our gatherings to express that we are indeed healthy. Sounds good. Um, It sounds um, like a good strategy. But what is the strategy for? The strategy is to have more people in a room. It's not that people would hear the gospel. It's not that there would be conversion. It's not that people would be set free. It's not um, anything to do with Scripture. It's about this idea that we want um, more people so we can feel as though we're a success. You've heard things like this before. Um, Our church isn't boring. Uh, We're actually exciting. Come and join us and you'll feel good about yourself. You'll, You'll become a better person. In fact, you will become the best version of yourself. Because ultimately, that's what God wants to do. Right? right. It's all about you, man. What you want, we got it. Whoever you want to be, God will make it happen for you. And, and we laugh, but it's so true. We see it all around us. It's not just some, some wacko on TV. This is happening all around us every day. I'm in so many churches It makes us as individuals the center of our own worship. And I think it confuses everything. But it sounds so good. There's easily been um, confusion, I think, both in biblical times, as we discussed, as well as in modern day, as to who's in. In the book 
that we're going through called Rediscover Church, the author writes this. It says, to, to rediscover church is to realize or remember why we gather in the first place. We gather to worship God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who has saved us from sin and death. That's what we sing. That's what we teach. That's what we observe in baptism and the Lord's Supper. Without conversion, without being born again, there is no church to rediscover. If Jesus had not died for our sins and been raised on the third day, there is no more hope to be found inside the church than outside. Without conversion, there is no church to rediscover. It's a great, great thought. This morning, there's just two pictures that I want us to look at of conversion, uh, being born again and being adopted. So let's first look at it, what it means to be born again. If you've got your Bibles, we're going to be in John chapter 3 for just a minute, maybe a few, uh, and then we're going to continue to bounce around a little bit. But in John um, chapter 3 and, and verse 1, it says, um, Now there, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Verse 3, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Imagine Nicodemus in this moment. Here, he, he takes a risk. He, he, he meets Jesus in the, in the middle of the night, so he doesn't get seen by other people, likely. And he's truly interested And how, how do I get to heaven? And Jesus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Huh? Verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is the, of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. And Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? In verse 10, Jesus answered him, Are you a teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you don't believe, how can you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shouldn't perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. 
And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may clearly be seen <clears throat> so that it may clearly may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This idea of being born again, certainly Jesus isn't talking about climbing back into your mother's womb. Um, how, how awkward would that be? No, he's speaking of something much, much bigger. And Nicodemus isn't quite grasping it. I think for us to begin to understand um, conversion, we first have to understand this idea that we're dead. Without Christ, um, we are dead. Ephesians 2 says this in verse 1, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Verse 4, but God, rich, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this, it's not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one can boast. We need to understand that because of our sin, we're spiritually dead. And we're not just talking about some theoretical ideas. Spiritually, we're dead, like dead, dead. Nothing we can do as people will make us spiritually alive again. Nothing. Does anyone know, um, anyone, uh, by testimony here, that once um, they are dead, they can bring themselves back to life again? We've got some medical professionals in here. Does this happen? No. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't happen. As chaplains, when uh, we have to make a death notification, we have to go into someone's home and tell them that their loved one um, has died. We, we don't go in and say, hey, I've got some bad news. Um, your loved one, um, they're not quite back alive yet, but they're working on it. No, that'd be ridiculous we have to tell them the incredibly difficult truth that their loved one is dead. And it's even more difficult because you, you want to make it sound better. You want to tell them that their loved one is no longer with us. You want to tell them that we lost them. You want to tell them something other than the fact that they are dead and they are never coming back again. I, I want to tell them something other than that. 
I would love to tell them something other than that. But that would be cruel. They need to know that their loved one is dead. We don't mince words, we don't soften the blow, and it is an atomic bomb that goes off in people's lives. Many of you have probably experienced this. Those are moments we never forget. But we must understand in that situation and in ours that if we are dead, we need to understand that we're dead. We don't have to beat people over the the head with it. We certainly express it with grace and mercy, but we must tell people. We must also see in this passage in Ephesians 2 that God alone gets the credit for our rebirth. It's not us. It's not me. It's not you. Um, He is the one who made a way for us to be born again. He is it. Um, He is the one who made a way for us to be made new and alive. Isn't that good news? That he does this and we don't have to somehow figure it out? Anyone can attend a church service. Anyone. Anyone is welcome um, to join us um, here on a Sunday or any other church, I imagine, all over the globe. But to truly belong to a new spiritual family, to belong to the church, to see the kingdom of God, as we're talking about in John chapter 3, we must be born again. The second picture of conversion I want us to look at this morning is adoption. In Galatians 4, verse 1, it says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons." And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but you're a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. In adoption, we need to realize we gain a new family. God adopts us into his family. We have new parents. In that moment, we have God the Father. We have new siblings, new brothers, new sisters. We have a new identity. Our identity is no longer marked by our career. It's no longer marked by our sin. It's no longer marked by what we do or haven't done or can't do. It's no longer marked by and becoming some best version of ourselves, our new identity is being a part of the church. And what is the church? It is simply Christ's body. It's his family. That's what it is. And we are adopted into this with new parents, new siblings, and a new identity. And what is that marked by? Scripture says you should know a tree by its fruit. What are those fruits? for this family, for this tree. We should be marked by love and what we say and what we do. We should be marked by love. We should be people of joy. Christians shouldn't be people that are walking around all humbug all the time. 
Certainly we have bad days. Certainly things go wrong. But we should be people of joy because we have been adopted by our creator. We should be people as the church who are marked by peace. In troubling times, we should be people of peace. When uh, things go wrong, when it all hits the fan, when um, everything just seems to be going wrong in the world during an election year, we should be people of peace. We should also be marked as people of patience. Not pressing too hard, not pushing too hard, but people who are comfortable waiting on God's timing and God's will. Whether it be for a job, whether it be to capture the hearts of our kids, whether it be um, anything, we should be marked by patience. We should be marked by kindness in how we speak to people, how we speak about people, in our actions, in our spare time, in our job. We should be people who are known to be kind, in our parenting, kind. We should also be people who are marked by goodness. Doing good, speaking good to and about others. We should be people who are marked by faithfulness. Faithfulness in all things. Faithfulness to God's word. Faithfulness to the vows and commitments we made. Faithful in our marriages. Faithful to one another here as his family We should be people who are marked by gentleness. And we should be people who are marked by self-control. Anybody perfectly have all those things down? No. I know, for me, I've got much room to grow. And I I just want to say this. um, For much of my life, um, I viewed, and this is going to sound really stupid, but hopefully it makes sense, Um, I viewed these spiritual fruits as things that we're supposed to add, that I'm supposed to add to my life. The picture would be, I go and get those fruits, I glue them to the tree. Thank you. (laughs) It sounds absurd. but, But this is what I believed growing and adding these fruits in my life looked like. I would somehow go out and learn how to be more loving. I would somehow go out and learn how to be more peaceful. I would somehow go out and learn how to be more gentle or a person of self-control. And I would glue those things to my tree so people could see those fruits in my life. Versus learning to grow in my relationship with Christ to allow the roots that God's developing in my life to grow deep and wide so that in his time, in his way, he produces these fruits in my life, not because I've got Gorilla Glue, but because he is good and faithful and he's changing me. These things, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are markers of those who have been adopted into God's family. These are markers of the church.
and for us to be reminded too of this simple idea that we have been adopted. Our bloodline is sacred. Remember that. Our bloodline is sacred. Not so that we can be arrogant or proud, but that it should humble us. And that we should know that we are a child of the King. We should also be reminded that our commitment to one another should be sacred. Not dependent on what kind of um, argument you may or may not have, what disagreement you may or may not have, whether something has been resolved to your satisfaction, whether somebody said, um, I'm sorry, I was wrong, please forgive me or not. Our commitment to one another is sacred. Not because of how somebody acts or how I feel about something or someone, but because me, like you, we are no longer a part of that family. We're a part of God's family. And I think for us to be reminded too, God's commitment to us is sacred and it's unbreakable. No matter how much we screw up, he is never kicking us out of the family. We are always a part of his family once we're apart. And we could go on. We could look at... um, just about any uh, passage in Galatians and Ephesians, and there's many in 1 Corinthians, all through um, Paul's letters, through the Gospels. We're going to see example um, after example of the reality that God chooses us in his own uh, wisdom and his own sovereignty. Um, He chooses us, and he chooses us when we're dead, dead in our sins. There's nothing we can do. He, he, he picks us. And he doesn't pick us because we're awesome. He picks us because he chooses to, out of love and grace and mercy. He opens our eyes so that we might be able to see him. He opens our ears so that we might be able to hear him. And he gives us the faith that we don't have so that we might be able to believe in him. And when we turn from our sin and surrender our lives to our creator, it's Christ alone. Christ alone who causes us to be born again. It's Christ alone who adopts us into his family, where we are brothers and sisters, where we are children of the king. Who is the church? It's the followers of Christ. It's those who have been born again. It's those who have been adopted into his family. And those that do that, they demonstrate those fruits. And they also persevere. We're reminded of that in 1 John chapter 2. God's people persevere. Not because we're really good at persevering. (laughs) Because God makes us persevere. He gets us to the end. Those are God's people. So what do you do with this today? First, I want to encourage you to ask the question, are you you born again? I, I don't care if you've gone to church your whole life. Are you born again? Has there been a radical change where you went from dead to alive? If that hasn't happened, friends, you're not born again. There has to be a radical change from dead to alive. If, if, if Greg here this morning was dead, 30 minutes, two hours, a week, dead, here, that would stink. But yeah, it, he's here, he's dead. If, if he were to all of a sudden come back alive, that, that's radical. 
I mean, it, it, it should show. There should be a, a radical difference. Ask the question, am I really born again? Have you really been adopted into God's family? And maybe you have, but you really haven't um, began to embrace what it means to be a God, part of God's family. Embrace those things um, that are of God. And do you show signs of being adopted and born again, of being in God's family? Do you produce those fruits that we talked about? Or are you just gluing those things to your tree so that you look better? And are you willing to take up the call to share the gospel in a world that very much um, needs it? And I think in a world that very much believes they're alive, but are probably truly dead. It's an act of grace for us, not to go around just telling people, um, hey, you're going to hell, pray this prayer, and you're in, um, as though it's some secret club. It's not ever what God intended. But for us to be the kind of people that care enough about people to help them realize that without God, we're all dead. We're all dead. But through Christ, through his grace, through his mercy, we can be made alive again. Let's be people who do that wherever we go. Let's pray. Father, we're challenged by your word this morning. Challenged by the fact and humbled by the fact that um, you have chosen to love us and, and care about us. God, that you would send your one and only son in this world to die, to pay for the sin in my life, where I am deserving of hell. That you would stand in the gap, that you would be the Lamb of God that was promised long ago to pay for our sins. And God, not only that, in those moments you don't just forgive us, but you give us a new life. You make us alive again, much like Jesus was risen from the dead. He is alive again. And because of that, you adopt us as your sons and your daughters. God, that we are heir of all things with Christ. God, may that humble us. May it um, encourage and challenge us. May it give us confidence and strength that our identity is not in anything other than you. And God, each and every day, may we look to you as our good and gracious King. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.